Good morning, Glenridge. What a privilege it is to bring God's Word to you today. And what I feel like we need more than anything else, for obvious reasons, is to learn afresh how to trust God. That's why I've titled today's sermon, You Can Trust God. I want you to do me a favor. Imagine you have got a telescope. It's a time traveler's telescope, so it's going to enable you to go back in time, and you're going to just zoom, adjust your lens to the American uh, fight for independence. So now you go in, you'll see the Battle of Long Island. It's in New York, 1776. And you adjust and you see the British troops are attacking the American revolutionists. You adjust your telescope to see the British General William Howe's 20,000 men severely beating George Washington's 10,000 patriots. Now let's assume you don't know how it all ends. You don't know that the Americans actually win the war. Let's, as you observe through your telescope, what do you see? Well, you see them getting beat. You see George Washington losing 2,000 casualties to General British, uh, the British General Howe's 383. 2,383. George Washington gets pushed back to Brooklyn Heights. And it's there that Howe decides to lay siege instead of advancing on, his, on George Washington's troops which then enables George Washington in the night to sneak across the river. And in that, there's a famous painting of that particular scene. Now, as you look through your telescope, what would you naturally assume? Well, you would probably assume that the British win the war. And if you keep looking, what you'll see is that they actually continue to push back George Washington's men. One retreat after another, the British rout the Americans. So it would be a pretty safe bet at that moment to assume that Britain won the war. In fact, there's a quote from historian Henrietta Elizabeth Marshall. It says this, Washington now resolved on a retreat towards Philadelphia and gloom settled on the ragged little army of patriots. They were weary of retreats and defeats and felt their cause was already lost. Winter was fast coming on and many shouldered their arms and marched homeward. And so the once buoyant, enthusiastic army melted away to a hungry and dispirited troop of a little more than 4,000. Just when I read that quote, I think this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Many of us ragged and, and feel like we're being beat back in this time as winter approaches. And you continue to look through that telescope and you're thinking, Jeez, is it true that America could win the war? If I told you that they actually win the war and that's all you saw, you'd have your doubts. And justifiably so. But every historian knows that in order to make a proper and accurate assessment of history, you, have, you cannot look at an isolated event or even a limited time frame. You have to see the whole picture to get the whole story. Allow me to quote, and I don't do this often because he didn't have a lot of great things to say, but a lot of good songs to sing. John Lennon said, everything is going to be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, then it's not the end. Now, it's disputed if Lennon actually quoted, said that originally or was quoting somebody else. But regardless, he was right. 
We all know that you need the middle and the start is not the whole story. You need a, a start and a middle and an end to the whole story to get an accurate assessment. And that's the same. When with us trying to make a decision, if God's going to be trustworthy in this time, we have to consider the whole story. That's why almost always in the Bible you see men and women of faith choosing to base their faith, God's faithfulness, His trustworthiness on stories from the past, even opposed to their own personal story, as opposed to their own personal story. For example, the, the writers in Psalms always pointing to Exodus, and they talk about the Exodus story and how Moses, how God was faithful to the Israelites all through Exodus. They look back. They don't simply assess God's faithfulness in light of their own personal experiences. And then think about that quintessential chapter 11 of Hebrews. In fact, the whole, the whole book, really. But that chapter of Hebrews is a perfect example. Do you remember as a church, we looked at that at the end of last year. And we saw that the author's task was to encourage the Hebrew Christians as they were facing severe difficulty and, and they wanted to give up. And they, and they thought, can we trust God in this whole time? And he says, don't give up. The entire book is about God's trustworthiness. But do you remember how he builds his case, how he builds his argument? Does the writer, does he, does he look just to their own circumstances? No. He says, he doesn't tell them, count your blessings and name them one by one. Although that's a brilliant faith building exercise. He actually says, look at the whole story. He takes them back. See, if he had just said, count your blessings, you know what would have happened? It could have backfired. Maybe, maybe their, their suffering was more than their blessings in that moment. And then you're in trouble. But you know, he says, if you want an accurate account of God's trustworthiness, look at the stories of your predecessors. Like Noah, like Abraham, like Joseph and David. And there are so many mentioned in that chapter. Now, if you direct your telescope to those men at any particular moment or at, at, at difficult moments in their life, if you were to look, for example, at Noah lost in a flood, you would think, surely this guy is doubting God's trustworthiness. Or Abraham who's caught in a lie about his wife, Sarah, or Joseph sold into slavery, or David, who's betrayed by a son. If you were just to look at those isolated events and those time frames, you would say, surely this doesn't have a good ending for these men. But it does end well, because God's trustworthy to the end. That can be said of us in these days. We're going to look back and say God was trustworthy to the end even in COVID-19 and all its fallout. Now, I don't want to minimize. I don't mean to minimize the real pain and the doubt that, that's caused by legitimate suffering that people will go through and, we're, and some are going through now. And even the legitimacy of questions around, is God trustworthy or not? It's legitimate to ask those questions. It's okay. God can handle it. But the Bible tells us that He is trustworthiness. And it bases His trustworthiness on His faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, If we are faithless, still he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He remains faithful. Now, I want to just take a tangent here because I think some people would expect me when I'm talking about is God trustworthy or not? And is he faithful or is he trustworthy? They would want me to look at two things, either his sovereignty or his kindness. Most Bible teachers 
They refer to God as great or God as good to prove that God is trustworthy and you can put your trust in him. And I believe those arguments are brilliant. They're legitimate. They're great. They can enhance our ability to trust God. But I don't think that they necessarily should be our starting points. Allow me to explain why. At the risk of really grossly oversimplifying those two positions, let me, let me tell you essentially what those two arguments are about. One is you can trust God because He is great. In other words, He's sovereign. He's in control. Or you can trust God because He is good. He's loving and He's kind. The only problem, let's take the first one, the only problem with the God is great argument is that it leads us down endless rabbit holes of asking questions and determining just how much God is actually in control. To what degree can we blame evil in the world or do we think it through the lens of God being great and in control? See, some Christians feel like it's better to trust God knowing, thinking that he is behind everything in the world, both the good and the bad in our lives. So even to the minute detail. So they would say he's absolutely sovereign, even to the minute detail. And they blame Satan for evil, but they say that God is behind that evil. So you can still trust him because he's going to be able to work it all out in the end because he's behind it. Other Christians can't imagine anything worse. If it's true that they, they argue, if God is actually behind the grief, behind all of this, how, how can I trust God? How can I trust that even if it's technically Satan to blame, how can I trust God not to allow me to, to be hurt even more or e- even worse? On the other hand, there's those that say, well, no, no, no. We, we don't want to give credit to God for evil. We don't want to credit him with evil. We only want to say God is good and he's always good, but there there is evil in the world and Satan brings it. They would blame Satan on everything and they say God is not behind any of it. And they often what they want to do is they want to place the authority to demolish the evil in the world in the hands of Christians instead of even God because you know God's not an absolute over every detail so we have the authority. Basically, God's kind of said, here you go, here's my authority and, and you can defeat evil, There, go for it. And God effectively gives us the power and leaves it all up to us. This is all in the God is great argument. However, other Christians can't imagine anything worse than that. Well, because if it's true, they say, if, if, you know, how much power does Satan actually have in our lives? You know, and, and is, how powerless is God actually to stop him if he's just kind of not actually in control of all the details of our lives? And they think, wouldn't it be better if he's in absolute control, even if he's behind all the evil and everything, he's allowing it to be or- allowing it in order to orchestrate it for our good. And so they actually would counter that argument. And these are difficult questions to ask and to consider. So some would then want to avoid the argument of God is great altogether. And they want to say, okay, let's look at the argument of God as good. So they bring in the argument of God as good and they say, here it is. But once again, we're faced with often more questions than answers with that argument. Because we have to first const- decide what constitutes as good. What is good? By good, do you mean those things that make us happy? So God makes us happy. By good, do you mean what God, that God ensures that nothing bad ever happens to us? By good, do you mean that he never punishes us? Well, what about the consequences of sin? Does he allow that? If he does allow those consequences, does that mean he's not good? 
And we could go on and on. Lots of questions. How subjective should we be? Because what's good to you might not be actually good to me. Furthermore, we see clearly in the Bible that God's goodness was demonstrated through Jesus, through the miracles that he did. Yet it says, actually, in John 12, 37, it says that though he had done so many signs in front of them, still many of them could not believe in him. So they saw he was good, but they still couldn't trust. Consider for a moment, if I were to try and convince you of someone's, how you could trust somebody, if they're trustworthy or not. How do we normally do that? I mean, do we point to their greatness? If I were trying to tell you that someone is trustworthy enough to put your trust in them, would I say, well, you can depend on them because they have a lot of influence and a lot of power over people? How, how, you know, how, how does that make him trustworthy, though? Because he might have a lot of power, but is he necessarily trustworthy? Or maybe I say, well, no, no, you can, you can trust him because he's really good and he does a whole lot of good things for people. Well, he might be good, but does that make him trustworthy? Now, if I were to convince you, if I wanted to tell you that someone's trustworthy, I would say something like this. You can trust him because he's always been there for me. Anytime I've needed him, he's been there. But furthermore, I would add and I might say he has a track record of faithfulness. He doesn't let people down. He always does what he says he's going to do. It's that track record that makes him dependable. So if I'm building a case for God's trustworthiness, I can look to God as greater, God as good, and those are okay to supplement. But I actually, the foundation, I believe, needs to be, no, it's his faithfulness that makes him dependable, trustworthy. I believe both God is good and God is great. But I'm suggesting that we rely, that we look at the bulk of our argument, our case on God's trustworthiness needs to be on his faithfulness because to do either of these puts us on subjectively thin ice that might hold up some but not others. I recommend that you would consider how faithful God is so that you might be able to trust him in this time. And I believe we see in the first chapter of Acts that we've been looking into as a church, we started our series on Acts, and I believe what you see in here is that it points to God's trustworthiness based on the fact that he's trustworthy to the end, he's faithful to the end, that he's faithful to his promises, and he's faithful to himself. So let's look at he's faithful all the way to the end. If you look at the very first few verses, he's, he writes, uh, Luke writes this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. And this is important appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He's speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Now, we don't have all the details of what he said, and we know from the, from the, the gospels that he spoke in parables, he taught about the kingdom of God, so we can get an idea. But I believe he was also unpacking the scriptures 
all of it. And this is why I say that. Remember the story of the two disciples on the Emmaus Road that are walking with Jesus. If you want to turn there, it's in Luke 24. And in Luke 24, we see the case of these. Now, they don't know that they're walking with Jesus. They don't realize they're walking with him. They don't know who they're talking to. But if we take a look at a portion of it, look at verse 21. This is what they say to Jesus. We're just dipping into their conversation. They say, but we had hoped that he, that Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. They're saying he hasn't shown up yet. Jesus, then if you jump down to verse 25, Jesus responds to them and says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now that's powerful. They were saying effectively, they're saying in, that, that they were expecting Jesus to come in a certain way. And of course, the scriptures speak about Jesus coming, redeeming Israel. But they were saying we're in this predicament now because he's meant to have risen again, but we haven't seen him. Some of the ladies have seen him. We haven't seen him. Now, three days have passed, and we're not sure that he is actually going to be faithful to do what he is meant to do. They're asking, can we even trust that Jesus has risen from the dead and is going to come and redeem us? Well, what does Jesus do? Well, he shows them that God is faithful through the scriptures. He opens up the scriptures and shows them from the prophets that they can lift their heads from disappointment because he gives them the bigger picture. Takes the telescope away and shows them the bigger picture. Now let's come back to Acts 1. Back in Acts 1, soon the disciples would see Jesus literally rise in the air. He is about to ascend into heaven. Now that's pretty, a moment, pretty amazing. You're about to see that in the ascension. Faith was about to flood their hearts. But Jesus doesn't wait until that moment to speak to them. He actually spoke to them, it says, for the, the previous 40 days, unpacking the scriptures. He could have flown up at that moment. Just imagine it for a moment. He, he, all he had to do was fly in the air and be like, guys, I'm trustworthy. Is this not awesome? Come on, tell me, tell me it's not awesome. You know, put his hands together and fly to the sky as Superman. How amazing am I? Instead, he shows them God's trustworthiness that is not just down to a moment, but how it's tr he's trustworthy all the way through to the end, all the way through. They were about to face grief and persecution like they had never faced before. They needed to know God was trustworthy, and certainly a display of His power would help. But He actually spends 40 days unpacking how trustworthy God is all the way to the end, all through the Scriptures. But He's also faithful because He's faithful to His promises. God his trustworthiness is based on his faithfulness to his promise. Look what he says here in verse 3. He presented himself alive. Sorry, uh, let's, let's jump down. Verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he says, you've heard from me, and it's the Holy Spirit is going to come. Don't you love it that he calls it 
the promise of the Father. I love that the Holy Spirit is the Father's promise. Like, like he is, he, he is uh, God's trustworthiness personified. You know, I, I hate puzzles. I don't like puzzles. I've got friends that send me pictures of the thousand-piece puzzles that they do. My parents, in the middle of lockdown, have been doing puzzles, two or three or four, and they've sent me pictures. Every once in a while, I get a picture of a 5,000-piece puzzle on my newsfeed or wherever it might be, Instagram. And I actually, it sends tremors through my bones because I, I imagine myself hunched over this big pile of chaos night after night. And I think, oh, the fortitude that I would need. I mean, how long does that take? How patient would I need to be? How consistent and how committed would I have to be? And I just think, oh, I just get tired thinking about it. And then I project further into the future, and I think, to, or into that analogy, into that image, and I think, what if I would have to do, what if I had to do a 5,000 piece puzzle and I didn't have the picture on the box? Like I didn't know where it was going. And I, it, I literally shudder at the thought because I just think, oh my gosh, I could never do that. Yet, this is how many people are trying to piece together the puzzle of their lives. They've got this massive pile of experiences. And now we're getting even more of them because of the situation we're in. And they're trying to make sense of all these experiences. How do they fit together? How, what, what do they say of God? And what do they say of his people? And what do they say of, of my place within that story? And they're trying to figure it out. And you know, the Bible is actually the photo on the box. This is the photo on the box. It gives us the full story and our place within it. And to try to piece our lives together without it is a painful process that leads to frustration and inaccurate, incorrect assumptions. And that's why we often feel ourselves, our lives don't fit in and they don't piece together properly when we know they should be coming together. We don't know how it all works. And oftentimes the picture that we have if we don't have the Word of God before us is the wrong picture that we're trying to make sense of our lives from. We, we have this, and if we, don't, if we don't actually start to find resolution in this, we start to trust in self-reliance. And that's a scary place to be, and I hope you're not there right now. God's promises are like, they're like the straight pieces of the puzzle. You know the puzzle, whenever you put a puzzle piece to, puzzle together, you do the outline first. You get all the straight pieces and you put them there. And you do the corners. And you get it to the frame and it's the boundaries. It's the edges. It's the sides of the puzzle. And within that, the rest of the puzzle fits. Well, that's the same with our life. The promises of God are the straight edges that make the frame. And our lives fit within those promises of God. And the Bible is full of promises from God. Our life within is, 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 that's the boundaries. We often think the boundaries of our life is around our own capabilities and our ability to make something happen. And you might be thinking that's the boundary at the moment. It's in your ability to make something happen. It's not. The boundary of your life is in the promises of God. Promises like Jeremiah. You know, the famous one we love, Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, give me a well, give you good welfare and a future and hope. Love that verse. Or Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a promise that you can frame your life in. 
And my God supplies every need of yours according to the riches of Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. That's a promise. And the Bible is literally full of hundreds of promises. In fact, the entire Bible is one big promise of God's faithfulness. That's why he's given it to us, to show that he's trustworthy. God is not shy of making his promises. And we need to frame our lives within that. Because he's faithful to his promises. And he wants to show that to you. The whole Bible is that promise of God. This is the picture. Find your life within it. But there's more. You know, quoting a Bible verse every single day is wonderful. And you can put your trust in it every day. And I'd encourage you to do that. However, it's not our belief in the promises that brings them to pass. It's actually God's belief in them. One of Megan's favorite quotes, my wife Megan, one of her favorite things to say in our house is don't trust in God's ability. Don't trust in God. Sorry, don't trust in your ability to trust God. Trust in God's ability to be trustworthy. You know, Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or that he should change his mind. Has he not said it? Will he not do it? Has he not spoken it? Will he not fulfill it? He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy to his promises. He has not made those promises in order to give us false hope. No, he's made those promises in order for us to frame our lives by them. He believes every word that comes from his mouth. And he intends to be a God of his word. That's why he tells the disciples, I'm making a promise. The promise that the Father sent is coming. And we know that promise is actually his presence with us. And that promise is ours as well. God is with us. God's promise is with us. It's his guarantee. He's faithful to that promise. And he sends his Holy Spirit to let you know it's a guarantee. I'm going to fulfill everything I said. Isn't that incredible? The Holy Spirit with you. God's trustworthiness is also based on his faithfulness to himself. Let's look down to Acts 1, 6 here. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now this is, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Isn't this what the two disciples on the Emmaus Road were asking? But he says to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by His authority. Basically, they are saying, we need some certainties about our future. God says, you don't need certainties about your future. You need certainties about my faithfulness. And that's what He would say to you right now. That's what we actually need. He effectively says, you don't need to know the future. You need to know that God is faithful. His faithfulness throughout the ages, through the whole big story, His faithfulness to His promises, that's the authority that God has. You can trust Him, is what Jesus is saying. Hebrews 12 reminds us we need to fix our eyes. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. What are they a witness to? To us, maybe, but also to the faithfulness of God Let us lay aside everything, everything that clings to us, the sin that so easily clings. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. What does it say? Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It says for us to consider him, to consider him, how he did it, who endured from sinners such hostility so that you might not grow weary and lose heart. Now, if you consider how Jesus lived his life, it was based on the faithfulness of God himself. He even often uh, speaks about his credibility to people and says, no, I only do what the Father says. That's my credibility because I'm bringing you something trustworthy, which is God. That's what Jesus did. He pointed to the faithfulness of Jesus, of, of God. In fact, it brought up the joy. He was able to endure the cross. He was able to endure hardships with joy. And Paul was as well. Why? Because they knew God's faithful all the way to the end. He's faithful to his promises and he's faithful to himself. He is faithful to himself. Do yourself a favor. Throw away that telescope. And by all means, do not use that telescope on your own life. Don't zoom in on this moment in your life and make an assessment on how it's all going to fit together and how it's all going to work out. Look instead to the full story of God to have a fresh understanding of just how trustworthy God really is. The largest jigsaw puzzle ever assembled was 551,232 pieces. A group of 1,600 university students in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, secured the Guinness Book of World Records title on September 24, 2011. Now, if I were to put one puzzle piece together, every minute of every hour of every day for over a year, I would eventually get there. If I only placed one piece a day, it would take me another 1,510 years. Then I think about God and my life. I mean, how big is that puzzle? How long would it take to put it all together? And the good news is that we have more than 1,510 years to do it. In fact, we have all of eternity to do it. But the even better news is that we don't have to figure it all out. We've got the Holy Spirit with us, and He has already figured it all out. If we were to listen to Him each day, and He tells us to put this piece with this piece, and this promise with this promise, and keep trusting, based on the faithfulness of God, our lives are going to come together the way that they are meant to. And you know what that looks like? That looks like this. It looks like the Jesus that we see in these words, in these, in these stories. That's what our life is meant to look like. In the end, our life will be based on the faithfulness of God, His promises, because He's faithful to Himself. And we will look like we are meant to look, and our lives will look as they are meant to look. And we will say, wow, God, you are faithful. God, I'm so glad. I trusted you. Glenridge Church, let's keep trusting God together. Lord, I pray that you would come for each person watching this and you would settle in their hearts that they're going to decide to not look at their lives through a telescope, but to remove it and to look at their lives based on the faithfulness of God throughout all of history. I pray, Father, that you would give them the ability to do that, the desire. And more than anything, you would show them that the Holy Spirit with them, the promise of God, 
given to your disciples is theirs. And I pray, Lord, as they develop that relationship and as you grow that relationship, Lord, as they read the words in this beautiful book of yours, the story of your faithfulness, God, the Holy Spirit would illuminate it to them, would show them how their life fits in, give them peace, give them courage, and give them strength. Thank you, Father. You are so faithful. We place our trust in you. Amen.